I'm Jeannie Phillips and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We're here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today I'm with Erica Saunders and we'll be talking about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi. Thank you so much for joining me, Erica. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, well, first of all, thank you so much for asking uh, me to join you. Um, my name's Erica Saunders. I'm an educator here in Philadelphia. <clears throat> I've been working in um, an urban environment, educating for about 17 years. Um, I'm a special education teacher and I call myself the learning maximizer because what I do is teach children how to maximize uh, their learning. So um, I've thrilled to talk education and uh, clearly this book holds a very dear place in my heart. So uh, I'm excited to chat with you about it. I am so excited that you're joining me. And I, I also just wanna say you are also on the Middle Grades Institute faculty and we're delighted to have you as a faculty member. Thank you, yes I am. That's a new one for me. So uh, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> So I always ask this question at the beginning because I'm just, I'm a librarian at heart and I'm curious about it, but what else are you reading or what other books might you recommend? Oh, wow. That's a, that's an excellent question. So sort of in general, um, I uh, started, we got this, uh, which I'm looking at sitting right over there. Um, I highly recommend that book. It's um, accessible and digestible um, and yet has some pretty powerful pieces to it. Um, for leisure, I am a huge young adult fiction fan. So much of what I read is, um, not to mention I work with middle school students uh, often, so a lot of what I read is sort of the middle school um, uh, literature and uh, so, if you want to relax and enjoy and just sit back, I highly recommend grabbing some of that really good, juicy <laughs> middle years uh, literature that's out there because it's really, uh, it's really gotten pretty exciting over the years. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> some of my favorite books are middle grades and, and young adult books. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I love Cornelius Miners. We got this. I think it's so practical. Yeah, I really, um, when I picked it up, I found uh, that it was something that was also accessible. Um, with my focus being special ed, uh, sometimes when I'm looking at a book, I look at it through that lens and whether or not even the, the formatting of it and how it's presented is something that feels accessible to a lot of people. Uh, and there was something about this that had that feel where especially around race were very emotional and dense and sometimes academic uh, in a way that's unaccessible. When I looked at this, I thought, wow, this is something that has lots of access points, uh, visually, how it's laid out, how you can sort of digest pieces of it uh, and not feel overwhelmed. So I'm very, very excited about that one too. Uh, that's a great lead in to this book, Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism and You. Because Ibram X. Kendi, the co-author of this book, wrote a really dense, really, really, really dense uh, book called Stamped from the Beginning um, that I read about, uh, I would say a third of, <laughs> before I finally was like, I can't do this and be in a doctoral program too, um, uh, that's been rewritten or remixed, as Jason Reynolds says, for young people in such a way that it's really accessible, is what I found. Did you also find this to be very accessible? I did. Um, and accessible to young people too. And I love the way he, uh, you mentioned it, remixed. You know, you're really tapping into that young adult audience and um, inviting them in, in a way that feels connected a bit to them. And I loved that about this book um, because these are, these are important topics. Um, and these are topics that often hit very deeply in ways that we might not, not even realize and um, can have the ability to divide uh, people, especially sometimes, um, you know, when you're presenting truth that 
is hard to take if you are sort of the person who's not oppressed and sort of more in the oppressor role uh, in terms of your um, race or, you know, how you identify, not that you are that person, that can be a hard thing. And um, so, you, you know, having it be accessible that way. And then also on the flip side, because as an African-American woman here, you know, in, in the United States, um, there's enough trauma, you know, and, and generational and ancestral uh, ancestor uh, trauma that you know seeing it again can tap into a lot of things from sadness and defeat to anger and you separate yourself I've read some things where honestly I needed to not quite frankly be around white people for a little bit because it's hard not to feel that um, and I felt that this particular book kind of walk that tone very nicely where there's almost some humorous points in to diffuse some of that um and present it in sort of these small chunks that you can kind of get to and then step back from for a minute so i'm i really love the way he crafted this work i consider it a work of art that's beautifully said and i think of ibram x kendi i've written i've also read his how to be an anti-racist and um he's a scholar right? He's a professor and he writes with a real scholarly tone. And Jason Reynolds changes that tone quite a bit and adds a little bit of play and a little bit of um, breathing space. I also loved that Jason Reynolds starts this book, this about a conversation that we often feel really, we, we especially white folks feel very uncomfortable talking about often. And he starts it off with, um, some deep breaths and some you got this. Yeah, I was actually shocked in, a, in the most pleasant way um, when I heard him say, you know, one, put it out there, you know, uh-oh, race, the R word, let's, you know, we know we want to run from that. Um, and then just say like, okay, let's take a deep breath. Let's inhale and exhale, um, race. And then right after that, which is the part I didn't read, he was like, see, not so bad. Um, again, giving the permission that these terms, this subject that's so taboo and so um, argumentative and so separating, especially in today's world, um, doesn't have to be. It's not easy. There's some difficult parts. Uh, and yet we've done that before in so many other areas. And yet we get to the race, you know, the issues about this country and how it's, you know, kind of gotten to where it is and it becomes this, no, no, let's not. So uh, again, making it the sort of accessible thing um, and even saying, okay, you know what? We're going to take a deep breath. We're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like this book is a way of inviting us in to say, um, this is uncomfortable to talk about and yet so necessary. Um, I just really, I really appreciate the framing, both what it means, to, what, what, how they, how Kendi defines racism and anti-racism. And then I also really appreciate um, this other framing right on page three. It starts right away, right after the section you just read which is um, that the authors want us to keep in mind these three words as we read, and they are segregationists, assimilationists, and anti-racists. I also love that um, Kendi and Reynolds start us off with some really great definitions to frame this text, and um, there are three of them. So I'm gonna share them. They're from pages three and four. I love how Jason Reynolds puts them in this, like you said, accessible language for kids. Segregationists are haters, like real haters. People who hate you for not being like them. Assimilationists are people who like you, but only with quotation marks, like, like you. Meaning they like you because you're like them. And then there are anti-racists. They love you because you're like you. But it's important to note, life can rarely be wrapped into single word descriptions. It isn't neat and perfectly shaped. 
So sometimes over the course of a lifetime and even over the course of a day, people could take on and act out ideas represented by more than one of these three identities. It can be both and. Just keep that in mind as we explore these folks. And by folks, I think Jason Reynolds is really talking about all the historical figures that we're going to follow through this long, um, these long chapters of American history. Yeah, just again, so, so brilliantly put in a simplistic way, because these are complicated concepts that adults struggle with and have and continue, etc. So to kind of um, boil it down to its essence and put it again in these sort of everyday terms. And again, I'm feeling the unapologetically sort of black access points because that's who he is and why not make it that way? You know, segregationist haters. Um, not that other people can't understand that, but you know, I access this book from a, a black woman and I'm like, yes, I was uh, listening to the audiobook um, one day in my kitchen and honest to goodness, I'm like felt almost like the, the traditional church group, you know, put my hands up as he's speaking. And I was like, yes, preach, <laughs> because it just felt so real and, and uh, living as opposed to sterile. And then also feeling that connection with my life, because I remember when assimilation was my goal, I might not have understood it um, sort of separate from myself, but it was clear that my job was to make exactly what he says, to make you all like me. Mm -hmm. Not for who I am, but for how well I present myself and making sure, you know, that I was doing everything I needed to do to assimilate and have you all like me. Um, and it wasn't until I got older, and I mean older, uh, easily into my 30s, 40s, before that concept of anti-racist hit me as well. I had to come to a point as well where I took an anti-racist approach with my own race. Like, no, no, this is me. <laughs> and I want people to like me for me, <laughs> not because I've fit into your box that I'm not, you know, making you uncomfortable. Uh, so I connected with that where some people might not have thought, you know, the Black community could kind of see themselves through these definitions. Well, and boy, I just have so many thoughts right now. One is that um, I really appreciate how this moves us beyond a racist, not racist binary. It moves us beyond into like, we can find ourselves falling in, you know, sliding around on this continuum a little bit. And one person that... Um, Kendi and Reynolds really talk about sliding around on this continuum is W.E. Du Bois, right? Who, um, you know, for much of his life spends a lot of his time as an assimilationist, wanting black folks to sort of emulate white folks in order to be accepted, right? And so he really explores um, W.E. Du Bois's um, sort of own experience as an activist through the, that lens too. These, like you said, these terms can apply to all of us, right? Like we can, um, regardless of our background, we can find ourselves somewhere at different points on this continuum at different times in our lives. There are times every day where I need to, to slide between uh, assimilation and anti-racist um, just to make it. Uh, so there, you know, there's still times I often try to avoid sliding all the way back to the segregation because, you know, the, to me, that kind of does mean the hate of myself um, and the, the natural qualities that come with me. But there are moments where, you know, if I'm going to, to be successful in this moment at this time so I can make it to the next step, I've got to do a little assimilation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, step into something else. Right, right. Uh, and I see that on, I see that as a pragmatic thing. My understanding from people of color I've talked to is that it can, you can feel the need to assimilate in order to re meet professional goals, right? To like get ahead in the workplace, that it can feel really like 
uh, necessary, maybe to get that title behind your name or to dress in a certain way in academia or to present in a certain way, um, to code switch, if you will, in order to get uh, your professional needs met because we live in a racist society and this can often be completely um, invisible to white folks who don't even see it because they, they swim in whiteness. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I would have assumed that no white folk even understood this is what's going on. Um, so, you know, absolutely good point. And, and that code switching, um, again, that somehow that's, I understand it. I never liked the term. I don't know what it is about it that sort of rubs me the wrong way. And it could just be my experience. I understand it and I understand the need for it. Uh, but I mean, absolutely. Sometimes it's not, it's, it's about your job in order to, to get to that anti-racist point. You know, you've got to do some assimilation, you know, and then kind of gently move yourself around. Um, sometimes, you know, you're sick of it and you just put it out there. And sometimes, uh, as we all know, and um, forgive me if I choke up here, it's, you have to do it to live. It's not even about making it that job. It's about making it home. And that's something many of us, you know, I have a, a son, he's an adult now, how we have those conversations about um, absolutely assimilation, you know, don't be threatening because you are, you are already a threat. Um, and you know, we're back in that segregationist moment, you know, you're already a threat, so you better assimilate <laughs> so that, you know, you can present yourself as less. So, um, you know, excellent point of what you were saying that it's, it's, it's situational, it's moment to moment, it's live, get home, move through your job. And for many of us, it's something we learn so young that we navigate that world, which seems to, to people, especially white folk, to be just, you know, you don't pick up on it, but what it does to us, mm -hmm. you know, on a deeper level can be, again, it's trauma. I just keep thinking about um, that survival strategy and, this, and, and the survival strategy for children of the talk, right? Like the talk you have to have about the police. And, and we included... Um, I think some video about the talk um, uh, in a recent episode that I did on um, on the come up, um, which is written by um, Angie Thomas, who also wrote the hate you give and just mm -hmm. the um, will the real privilege as a white mother that I don't have to have that talk like that's like a huge privilege that I don't have those same worries because of my son is a white kid in a white supremacist society. Um, the, one of my favorite sections of the book, I think is actually about this and has new language that I was unfamiliar with. And I don't know if it was new for you. It's chapter nine, page um, 65. And I'm just gonna read this. This chapter is really short and I'm gonna read it because I think, I think it's speaking to just what we're talking about right here. It's called uplift suasion. Were you familiar with that term, uplift suasion? Uh, no. I was not. Me neither. So it says, this is a short chapter. Imagine it as a parenthetical, a side note, a just so you know. Black people, slaves, started to get free. Runaways and abolitionists urged the newly freed people to go to church regularly, learn to speak proper English, learn math, adopt trades, get married, stay away from vices, smoking and drinking, and basically live what they would consider to be respectable lives. Basically, live like white people. If black people behaved admirably, they could pr prove all the stereotypes about them were wrong. This strategy was called uplift suasion. It was racist because what it said was that black people couldn't be accepted as themselves and that they had to fit into some kind of white mold to deserve their freedom. But in the 1790s, uplift suasion was working, at least it seemed to be. It's important that you keep this in mind because it would be the cornerstone of assimilationist thought, which basically said, make yourself small, make yourself unthreatening, Make yourself the same. Make yourself quiet. 
to make white people comfortable with your existence. I think what's so powerful to me about this passage is that it's set at the beginning of the book uh, in the portion of history that's um, set around the 1790s is really where he starts to see this emerge. And yet I would say this is still very much a reality of how we live today. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, as you're reading it and I'm nodding my head, you know, and whatnot, again, it's just, it's my life. It's mm -hmm. my life of how I was brought up. It's how I tried to bring up my son, you know, who's again, a black male. <laughs> so uh, by definition, a life threatening presence that is worthy of being put down the way one might. Um, I remember talking with my nephew as well about this, like where else, what other circumstances, you know, would you sort of shoot to kill the threat be so significant that it's completely understand that you shoot to kill first and ask questions later. And I literally went like grizzly bear. Like that's all I could think of. You're in the woods up, you know, upright bear is such a threat that you don't wait to see, Oh, is it friendly? You know, is it going away from me? Is it, you know, whatever? And then everyone, as sad as it would be, would understand why you felt such a threat. And this is my child. Um, and the interesting thing when you said, I'd never heard the term uplift suasion. Uh, suasion. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Um, but the idea of uppity, mm -hmm. which I believe this is, you know, that's, that's a term. Oh, Absolutely, because growing up, we were the uppity Negroes <laughs> in my community. You know, we were the uppity ones. We were everything you described. We dressed properly. We went to church. We had, um, no matter what our position was, we held it with grace. We uh, diffused. We um, would not do anything that was a perceived threat and these things weren't said out loud explicitly uh but that's what you understood and i grew up distinctly remembering that i needed to be better than all of my white counterparts and this was growing up in ocean city new jersey so that's if you know anything about that town very very white very upper middle class very privileged very christian and uh i knew right from very early on, the need to be better than. And that was how I presented myself. That was my grades. That was my activities. That was the people I associated with. Um, and again, as we talked about a little bit, getting into that segregationist where I was clearly, oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not them. No, 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 no. I'm not those Black people. No, no, no. I'm with you on that. No, that's awful. No, no. I'm I'm here. It's okay. Um, so again, as I'm listening to it, just it's the first time I've heard, um, one of the first times I've heard this kind of depiction where I'm going, yes, that is yes. exactly it. It echoed your lived experience. And do you think that students, um, the students you work with, students of color, still feel that need to assimilate and fit in? And I think they definitely feel the pressure to um, because I sort of hear it in different ways. And, and it's interesting because, um, you know, being a, a, an educator of predominantly uh, children of color uh, and seeing their experience and knowing in a way what they're going to need to do to succeed and yet realizing the, these children don't know a world where the possibility of a black president isn't isn't there they don't know that world and yet on the flip side they know that simply being whatever while black right being at starbucks here in philadelphia while black barbecuing while black could end your life and that becomes a very difficult thing for them, you know, as I watch them try and navigate uh, doing what 
what we just talked about, what you might need to do in this moment to get where you need to get, you know, so that you can do and powerfully do all these things you're doing. Well, and my awareness, I'm just so aware of all, all of the times that the double standard continues to exist. So thinking about, you know, in this current moment, I've been thinking about two things. One is, and one's been widely reported on, maybe both have. One is that um, wearing a mask in public and the acceptability of that is very dependent on race and racist attitudes, right? And like how you're perceived if you're wearing a face covering. And, um, and the other is, uh, I've been really wondering, I'm sure I'm not the only one, what would be happening right now if the people protesting at state houses about opening up the economy were black instead of white? And thinking about what those protests look like as opposed to what Black Lives Matter flag or Black Lives Matter protests look like, right? And so I don't really see people with riot gear, even though those protesters are bringing guns often. Mm-hmm. And so and, those yeah. are like just two really present current day examples of sort of the way racism plays out in action. Mm-hmm. And what I was going to say, these are things that the discussions that definitely happen in Black homes, in Black communities, um, among Black folk, uh, which, again, that word I know in the African-American community, especially here in America, you know, that folk means something, you know, Uh, it means lots of things. And it oftentimes means your people, you know. um, Yeah. And it can be used in both ways, right? Like folk meaning us, you know, and, you know, stay away from those folk. (laughs) <laughs> them <laughs> over there you know and it you know I think about d- different terms in different communities and how I can you know take on multiple meanings but um I mean absolutely we have those conversations literally all the time um mm-hmm. here in Philadelphia when there was the celebration of uh the Eagles finally you know winning a Super Bowl which we all you know uh celebrated although it was still during the sort of again Colin Kaepernick protesting, so everything's a dichotomy sometimes, right? But it's me sitting there on TV watching people climb up lampposts, destroy cars, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, oh, you know, the grease thing where they were putting grease on the poles so they'd slide down. And, you know, and my son and I looking at this going, yeah, they would have shot us by now. You know, as almost an offhand, and yet knowing we mean that wholeheartedly. Yeah. You know, um, That's a hard truth to carry. Uh, So what it makes me think about is that this book really chronicles this idea that racist ideas were used to justify slavery and genocide as we colonize this nation that we now call America, right? Like as we colonized other people's land, um, racism came with us um, and helped us sort of moralize, be able to do these like morally dodgy things, enslave people, uh, commit mass murder. Um, And that's not usually how we teach the founding of this country (laughs) at all. And um, it's not really what I learned in in the social studies classroom, right? So this book kind of turns it on its head because I think that the way, I'm trying to think about my own experience, my own lived experience. And I would say that I think the way we often frame racism is to say, um, oh, um, racism comes because of slavery. Instead of thinking that slavery, that racism came here and justified slavery and was encoded into laws in order to do that. Well, and almost, um, I would even go a step further uh, to say it it didn't just do it to justify. This country couldn't work, not then, not now, without. I was in college, college, um, before I saw a diagram of a slave ship and how they um, transported slaves. Um, as horrific as I understood it to be, you know, Roots was uh, just mind-blowing in, in, in uh, my life, you know, I was younger. I assumed they sat up, you know, in 
chairs, you know, not really chairs, but planks, you know, chained to each other, which was a horrendous thing in the first place, but sat up, you know, next to one another. And that's how they were transported. And isn't that horrible? And they were in the, you know, in the bowels of the ship and all of that. But, you know, of course they were sitting up. And to see a diagram where, you know, the idea of that packing, thank you for showing like on top, literally on top of each other, crushing those underneath the way you would do with any other um, commodity. So that, um, that really interests me in several ways. And one is um, I'm, I'm really wondering about um, what, how, how we need to prepare teachers, what teachers need to do to prepare themselves to teach hard history. And, and teaching tolerance is a great source for that, right? Like they have resources on teaching, literally called teaching hard history. Um, and then this concern that if we only teach slavery, like if we only teach black history where black folks are um, sort of, um, where it's only about the trauma and the pain and um, where there isn't a real sense of agency uh, for black and brown folks, that's also problematic. So I guess, and um, I think that teaching tolerance talks a lot about that as curriculum violence, right? What do you think teachers need to be aware of if they're gonna have frank conversations about race and history and racism and history in their classrooms? The harsh reality is until you understand, until you really understand how your very life benefits from this thing called race and, and oppression, um, how do you have that conversation? One of the things that scares me most, and I'll, you know, in terms of the damage that can be done to our, our young people of color, is a, a, um, a, a woke, liberal, white female teacher. That, to Are me, is- looking at me, Erica? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, you know, as as a group, <laughs> as a whole group, um, you know, you're asking the right questions, and yet, simply because you're experienced, you know, we're we're all going to make mistakes. You know, we're all going to um, trip in our way here. Sometimes, again, I come very harsh from the old school, you know, and sometimes I see what that, how that um, can emasculate our young men, and yet here I am, you know, preaching that for their survival. So, you know, it becomes a very difficult, tricky thing that I, I sometimes wonder what is the answer. And it's, it's, it's hard because again, starting at slavery starts from a, a point of we're always oppressed. It's like we, our colonialist lens runs so deep that we can't even see, um, gosh, I hate using the we. The American colonialist perspective runs so deep that it's hard for us to see or acknowledge uh, all of the other ways of knowing and being in the world that are of value. So mm -hmm. we see things through this really narrow lens. Mm -hmm. And that narrow lens, which came across, uh, you know, the Atlantic with us, prescribes history in this really narrow way. And then I think that um, uh, Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds point out that our first educational institution, Harvard University, is steeped in that and steeped in that perspective. Um, and so it makes me think of all the work. And I think what you're calling out about, um, and I agree, about um, woke white women educators is that there's a lot of work that has to be done personally to um, understand our own privilege in order to be even able to have these kinds of conversations. Um, and it makes me think when I was a school librarian um, at a, a middle and high school, often this issue would come up with students when they would, where they would be talking about race and racism. And students would often say, um, well, my family didn't own slaves. This has nothing to do with me. And I wish I had had this book at that time to help me better have language or help me 
help them understand the way it's all connected, the way that their history, their, their family um, genealogy is connected. And I think that's a good point about this book and the accessibility of it. Um, because again, it does sort of give, give language that's um, more easily understood, more easily consumed, more easily um, brought in these smaller pieces, you know, because even as I'm talking to you, it, it, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, you're sort of back to, well, then, you know, what do you do? And I never want to get to that point, you know, because obviously there are things we can do and what a brilliance um, to people, you know, everyone brings a different perspective and a different approach. How brilliant of these two gentlemen to come up with, you know, a, a book like this, that's not my forte. And yet both you and I can use this um, in different ways. And it's funny, you said, you know, understanding privilege. I think it was, in, in my new role as, a, as MGI staff, I was talking to someone about even that term. And again, we needed something to understand how, you know, just sort of whiteness allows things to happen. And I was sitting there going, wow, we use this term privilege. Even that puts that perspective in a superior position. You know, even the word privileged, you know, we, 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 um, you know, we tried to evolve to sort of write white frailty, you know, to kind of understand that actually this is a disadvantage because the privilege that we're talking about is a disadvantage. That's such a good point. And I wonder what it would look like if we talked about how our systems privilege people instead of calling people privileged, right? Because that's the point is that like, I think about, you know, one of the things that I think is brought up in this book is redlining, right? And so after World War II, um, uh, veterans were given money. My grandfather, for example, uh, mm -hmm. was given, you know, enough money to sort of build a house, even though he had like a middle school education. He wasn't an educated man. I come from really working class people, but he bought, you know, 10 acres in Pennsylvania and built a house and, and um, was allowed to sort of settle in a certain part of town. And, and this is in Washington, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And, um, and, uh, um, that wasn't allowed for everybody, right? Like people of color were pushed into apartments in cities and towns, right? And like redlining was a part it's, and it's still something that's ongoing in terms of who gets housing loans. It's not something that we've like completely, we don't call it redlining anymore. Right. But there's right. still right. systems in place that make it easier, um, that privilege white folks for buying houses, especially mm -hmm. in specific areas. Mm -hmm. And so instead of thinking of my grandfather as a privileged human to think about the systems and how the systems disproportionately privilege some folks over others, some yeah. racial groups over other racial groups. And I think Ibram Kendi really asks us to look beyond intent to impact and to say um, something is racist if it has racist implications on the, po on the population. Right? Yeah. Like if the outcomes are racist, if you can look at the and see disproportionality, then that policy, regardless of its intent, is mm -hmm. racist. I'm just playing with that idea because we use that word privilege has been, we've been using that word a lot. I use that word a lot. I think about that word a lot, but I really hear what you're saying. And it's not that, that um, white folks are privileged folks, but that the systems privileges them. Yeah. I mean, I think we get to the term sometimes where language matters. Um, you know, a lot of things I see um, in groups that, social media groups that I'm a part of, you know, as a black person, where we say things like representation matters, you know, be able to yeah. see yourself matters. Words matter too. Imagine, just imagine if we flipped it again, the way they did in this book to say, no, 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 that's oppression. That's what that is. It's, yeah. a, it it's oppression. Yeah. You know, these are oppress oppression systems that oppressive put, systems oppressive right. systems put in place to to keep people oppressed yes and the privilege that you have is simply uh you're part of the oppressed of the oppressors yeah um, i benefit i benefit from an oppressive from, system. exactly you benefit from an uh, the oppressions of others the you know system that oppresses imagine that's the language that's used almost the way again they sort of flip the script in you know in terms of how things are done and not intentionally to make everyone feel bad badly so that you like you know you can't but like no this is what it you know this is this is 
kind of what's going on. One of the things I think when you, that I'm thinking about now, when you ask me what would it take, and I, I do get very encouraged by the young people, by young people as they come up, being exposed to this book, because I think it will take eventually, right, sort of this generational push coming, you know, from the ground up of a, of a, young, a young group understanding more and more, seeing it in a different way, being educated about it in a different way, approaching it a different way, hopefully, you know, kind of would move um, to a point where more people understand that this can't work this way. I guess what I appreciate, I appreciate you pushing me on that language because it's really making me think. And I think our country pushes this narrative of the meritocracy, that people who are rich deserve to be rich, that we get what, you know, like this whole idea of bootstraps and pulling Mm. yourself up by your bootstraps is a part of the fabric of our nation. And I think that it's one of the narratives that makes it hard for white folks to see when they've benefited from the oppression of others. Because we like to think of ourselves as, and I'm going to use the language, even though it's also sexist, as self-made men, right? Like we want to think of ourselves as self-made men. Yeah. And um, yeah, and, and I think what that does, I think it does two things. I think it erases a lot of stories, right? Like the stories of people who work really hard and, and the system doesn't, um, benefit them and Mm -hmm. so they still have less and then I think it also whitewashes folks and I noticed this in the narrative um, these sort of American heroes that history whitewashes in that way so I'm thinking not just of Thomas Jefferson there's been a lot of news of Thomas Jefferson we know he was problematic that he owned slaves that he had children with one of his slaves right but also Abraham Lincoln who we think of as this American hero who had who held a lot of really racist ideas and in many ways was still not even an assimilationist, but a segregationist in his policies, even as he um, undid slavery. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, again, I grew up the same way in terms of understanding these heroes, um, including Abraham Lincoln among black folk. I mean, come on, he freed the slaves, right? Like that's the narrative. Um, and it wasn't until again, I'm certain I was out of school. Like, I, I just know I was, you know, out of grade school of understanding, uh, you know, what the Emancipation Proclamation did, what, who it freed, you know, the political strategy of why that happened. Um, and actually a surprising person helped me understand this. My, um, my sister's then husband, uh, from Texas and Texas very much celebrates Juneteenth and had in history. Um, and it was, he's the one who sort of helped me understand that there was something else. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, again, uppity educated, <laughs> you know, I'm not them, you know, what do you mean? Um, you know, and kind of even understanding that he's like, wow, y'all are so ignorant up here, you know? <laughs> and I'm thinking I'm ignorant really. Um, but again, because as educated folk, you, you, start to, you know, understand these things. And, um, you know, I went to, to Monticello and I got that tour and I was just, even not so long ago, heartbroken the way, you know, sort of slaves were presented. They, and I was told this was a big deal, uh, not by the tour guides, but by, by my cousin who lived there, that before they didn't even mention. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it wasn't even mentioned. And the fact here that it was mentioned was such a big deal, you know, with this smile and glee and took you down to the slave, you know, quarters and they pumped in the music of the and I'm just sitting there like, of course, the only, you know, black people there on the floor. Like looking around, like am I in a twilight zone? And they had just uncovered what they felt was a, a slave graveyard. Um, but again, you know, sort of starting to understand this and even and bringing it forward and um, you know, telling it from a different standpoint. This book reminded me too of a, a year or two ago. I read *The Warmth of Other Suns* by Isabel Wilkerson, which is a history of. Um, the Great Migration, and um, and so I think that there that there's this common narrative, at least in uh, school social studies, which is like 
we had slaves and then the civil war came and then we ended slavery and all's good. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and then, and then Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Let's right? not forget that. Right? Jim, Jim Crow happened too, but I think yeah. the warmth of other sons, um, really illuminated for me again not a history person the ways in which we ended slavery only for slavery to continue in other forms in the form of sharecropping in the form of um, imprisoning people for no reason and forcing them into labor camps right Um, that uh, black folks right after the civil war in the years after the following the civil war couldn't change jobs. Like in order to migrate to Chicago, they had to leave at dark and sneak away from their jobs. Like that's not freedom, that's still slavery. And then thinking about um, uh, Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi do such a good job of bringing up, bringing Angela Davis into this story, which brings really this um, modern version of slavery, which is mass incarceration. We still got so much work to do. So So much work to do. Uh, I wondered, I wondered how you might use this book with students. Um, it's one of those books that I feel would be most, almost most effective cross-curricular. Oh, I completely agree. Right? Because everything about race is cross-curricular, you know, and, um, you were just saying the economics of it, the math, you know, the mathematics of it, the social, Um, socialization of it, the science, right? Come on, we were three-fifths a person, you know, and then even the the modern science of it. Um, How effective and how powerful would this be if teens really did understand that this almost became a theme, you know, book that sort of um, helps be the essential questions, if you will, you know, of other things that you're teaching for a time, you know, that this is a unit where this becomes the fabric uh, through which we channel everything, you know what I I mean? And um, really connect that um, so that it can be seen because I think there's a danger. We, I certainly experienced it, right? The danger of the sort of isolated social studies lesson um, of exactly what you said, right? There was slavery. And then, and then uh, Lincoln, yay, (laughs) slavery was over, you know, and then we had some, you know, civil rights, good, you know, way to go, Rosa and Martin, never mentioning Malcolm X, of course, and, um, (laughs) you know, and then woo woo, and if you're lucky enough to be young, and then Obama, and it all worked, see how it all worked, you know, (laughs) direct line. And so there's no racism anymore, because we had Obama. Yay! Um, and, and yet we know how dangerous that is, you know. So imagine this being, you know, a cross-curricular, you know, embedded in, in everything that's done. I love that idea, Erica. And then one of the things I've been thinking about is, um, having read this, is that it's um, reading it in a big chunk, like reading the whole thing, listening to the whole thing, it's a lot. Right, you cover a lot of history, and one of the things I wondered about is using chunks of this text along with other texts and ideas. And so, thinking about um, incorporating um, John Lewis's March series mm-hmm. uh, with the section um, uh, section four, right, which is through 1963, and home is where the hatred is, and um, and so really thinking about, and then into section five where Martin Luther King is um, assassinated, right? And like, so really thinking about those pieces together and then thinking also about, I was thinking about science and what you said, and um, there's a lot about the human genome that comes in in this book towards the end and thinking about what it, what it wouldn't look like to do a little study of this with um, Henrietta Lacks and um, that fabulous book about um, the way her cells uh, were used without her permission or her family's permission um, and are still used in most of our cancer research. And so thinking about like um, how that could be cross-curricular around um, uh, race and justice in science and, and, and in social studies and combining with language arts and reading part of that, that great Henrietta Lacks book, or, or even thinking about there are sections of this book that reminded me of, um, Katherine Johnson and, um, that fabulous both book and movie, um, Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. 
right? And yeah. um, I thought a lot about that um, book uh, and movie in certain sections of this text as well, and how those things could um, sort of give kids a better understanding of the way that race plays out across our disciplines in society. I really love that. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I know this is sort of a I don't know, I want to say pipe dream, but um, you know, I've seen it where I teach where we serve by far, you know, the a large percentage of African American students, particularly in students of color, you know, where the, the proportion is clear that we are the majority at our school, you know, and yet we still um, do not present texts, literatures, ideas, even, heaven forbid, 50-50, <laughs> you know, in terms of an African-American perspective or a person of color perspective versus, yes. um, and imagine if what we're doing in schools is flipping that narrative so that that perspective is the forefront and that other texts are um supporting that in, in either different views or things like that the way we've taught up until this point right a very white perspective that we kind of filter you know and attach and maybe sprinkle a little seasoning on top of um which has been our understanding and imagine again just to try to get things you know sort of where in the equilibrium is is flipping that you know swinging that pendulum over to the side and even trying to spend a year where the main texts you know and things that we understand things come come from that perspective as being the perspective we look through and then okay now understanding that yes of course there are others and how do they play in and what does that do um imagine the powerful generations that would come through with that everyone is better yeah. everyone is a better person when you can have more vast experiences when you can step into the shoes of someone else when you can uh, begin to understand someone else's perspective and the way this country is designed and has been that's something that we as black people have always had to do we have to understand your world we have to yeah. understand the nuances and whatnot if we are going to succeed it just makes me think as a librarian i think that um especially as a as a school librarian, I think over the years, there's this narrative that, um, I think in Vermont, there's a narrative that like, well, most of our students are white, so we don't have to deal with this. Mm. And, and it makes, you know, it makes you ask the question, like, what kind of white people do you want to raise? Like, what kind of white people do you want in the world? And then also thinking about the many years that teachers, uh, maybe not just teachers, but that folks assume that boys won't read books that have a girl main character. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet we assume girls will read books that feature boys all the time. And then thinking about like the same thing with race, right? Like with any kind of difference, really, with um, uh, that, that we are so used to seeing ourselves centered as white folks that it can be jarring at first when we start reading books that center folks that are different than us. And that's exactly what we need. You know, I, I, when I think about what would be ideal, you know, especially from a, a woman of color, um, which is the only perspective, you know, it's my lived experience. Um, I oftentimes think about what, what an amazing educational system we'd have if, uh, you know, from a librarian standpoint, you know, it wasn't fiction and African-American fiction. Yes. You know, it wasn't yes. history and African-American history. It was simply history. I mean, that's the world I hope for which it's a hard one to imagine. Um, but I hope that we make these type of realizations, like these conversations between us, books like Stamped, you know, things that start to help us, and I mean us like the royal we, right? To help us to understand how upside down, because that's what I feel like it is. We are upside down. It yeah. sprinkling isn't going to work. We have to go through the work and the hard, agonizing, exhausting, almost never-ending work of even starting to turn this, you know, right side up. 
You're, you're uh, making me think a lot about Rudine Sims Bishop, and she's the person who coined this idea of books as um, uh, windows, mirrors, and sliding mirrors and sliding doors. That this idea that about representation that all kids deserve to see themselves in literature, and that books can also be this um, window where we can see the lives of others, and then sliding doors where we can find the commonality. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking about we use that a lot in um, literature. We think about that a lot in literature, and um, I love the idea of using that in um, history as well. And that we all deserve to see ourselves with agency in history and not just as victims of history, that we all deserve to see ourselves, right? Like that um, different, and, and some of us get to see ourselves in history that way regularly, right? But like, where do we get to portray folks as, um, and their brilliance and their agency and their power as empowered in history, as change makers, right? And, and, um, yeah, so you've got me really thinking about that and thinking about, um, and in science and in all disciplines, like what does that look like? And this book feels like an important part of that conversation. Absolutely. I think it, again, as we've said before, that it makes it accessible and gives a sort of entry point to have those difficult conversations, um, you know, and talk about representation where, um, you know, I had this discussion even at my own school where you know, as a person of color, as a black woman, and I see your array of books, you know, that that's very diverse on your end. And I'm looking and I'm like, yeah, yeah. why is the only book that has a, a black male leader is about a gang member who ends up killing two people and dies himself and he's 10? Yeah. Where is that equivalent in white literature? Yes, yes. Where's your YA book for Jeffrey Dahmer? And it's a true story, by the way. Um, that book is a true story of a, of a young man. And again, not that it, it's not a powerful, wonderful piece of literature to include. How is that the only representation? What messages are we sending? Where is, where, if I manage to find, you know, a YA, whatever, Jeffrey Dahmer, whoever, pick a, pick a person, but where the center person was white, uh, troubled, killed people, then killed himself and presented that, you know, what would that pushback look like? You know? Yes, I completely agree. Not every book about um, Black folks needs to be issue social justice oriented, right? Like sometimes we just want fantasy where the main character is Black for crying out loud, yeah. Just a story. I just want a story. Yeah. I just want a story. <laughs> <laughs> totally hear that. So I feel like we should wrap this up. And I wanted to end with just a little bit of the afterword because I think it's a nice way to close and um, put a um, sort of the bookend on our conversation because we started with the beginning. So I'm going to read a little bit of it and then maybe we can hear some final thoughts. Um, so. I love that it ends this way with this sentence. How do you feel? I mean, I hope after reading this not history history book, you're left with some answers. I hope it's clear how the construct of race has always been used to gain and keep power, whether financially or politically, how it has always been used to create dynamics that separate us to keep us quiet, to keep the ball of white and rich privilege rolling, and that it's not woven into people as much as it's woven into policy that people adhere to and believe is truth. Laws that have kept black people from freedom, from voting, from education, from insurance, from housing, from government assistance, from healthcare, from shopping, from walking, from driving, from breathing. Laws that treat black human beings like nothing. I think that was really important for me as a learner to realize the, that this, that this, that legislation is racist and creates racist conditions. And um, I wondered if you had any last thoughts on, on, on that or on the book in general. Um. I mean, do I have thoughts, of course. It's sort of like, there's so much, right, to swirl in. Um, 
I think, you know, in kind of closing and, and wrapping up, you know, our discussion around this book, I want to extend gratitude um, because it takes, you know, the, the, the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes more than a village to push against this um, enormous beast, if you will, of racism. It takes varied voices and approaches and it takes um, those who have been doing it for a while to be able to step back and take a breath because this is hard, exhausting work and have someone else, you know, step in. Um, it takes people from all views, approaches, um, braces uh, to have a turn in this work. And my gratitude for someone like the authors, um, Jason Reynolds, particularly for, for his young people approach um, to take up that mantle and say, hey, you know what? Here's something we can look at. Yeah. Um, and knowing that myself, for instance, not putting myself on, on their level, uh, but, you know, who does the work in a different way, has that resource. You know, yeah. I, the gratitude of these type of different perspectives that are coming in, you know, that are taking up the mantle, that are bringing um, a fresh approach or, a, or, you know, bringing a different group in, um, that gives me hope because there was a time not that long ago that I was tired mm. and I was seeing the enormity of this. I had seen the changes that had happened and yet everything still being the same. Yeah. And got to a point where I'm like, forget it. We're never going to do this. How are we going to do this? We're never going to do this. Um, and thankfully, there are those who not only come before us, but also come after us to, to say, it's okay. It's all right. You rest. You rest for a bit. I got this. I'm going to bring this book in. And that's going to allow you to have a second wind. Um, that's what it's going to take. And I, so I have hope in meeting people like yourself who are asking the questions, at least. I went through generations of, you know, you wouldn't even ask the question, you know, who understand there's more that they don't know than what they know. I think that's, you know, so important. So the gratitude for you to, to be willing to have a conversation with a black woman on a topic like this, this wouldn't have happened. It's never happened to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if I'm being honest, I live in a very urban, you know, environment. And yet, you know, so, um, seeing people like you who are saying, no, no, I, you know, please help me understand. I know my perspective is limited. I know um, that I'm going to say this maybe, you know, not quite the way I mean it because I have this perspective, please come. Um, that gives me gratitude, such gratitude. Well, um, I'm so grateful for you for sharing your perspective, your lived experience, your experience as an educator. Um, because uh, I think this book is important because once we know, once we know all of the ways in which race is used to uphold power and privilege and um, economic and political gain for some and um, not for others, then we can do something about it. Until we know, we can't really do anything about it. So I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me about this fabulous book can't wait to hear how teachers start using it and young people to start experiencing it. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much. I look forward to hopefully seeing you in person at MGI in June. And um, thank you so much for your time, Erica. I'm so grateful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It really has. And I, uh, I appreciate it all. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. 
Thank you to Erica Saunders for appearing on the show and talking with me about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. If you're looking for a copy of Stamped, check your local library. Special thanks to Audrey Holman, audio engineer extraordinaire. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.